We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning, chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, we're in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Maybe you've heard this phrase before. What have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? Have you heard that phrase before? Usually it might be said of maybe in a work environment, maybe if you've ever been in sales, you might have a sales manager that would tell you that. You would try to explain to your sales manager, you were the best salesman of the year last year, and he will re respond, what have you done for me lately? Because last year's sales don't pay this year's bills. So let's get after it. What have you done for me lately? Or if you play sports, you might have a coach like that. You say, coach, I scored all our touchdowns last week. I'm the all-star. I'm the best player on the team. And the coach will say, last year's touchdowns don't win today's game. So what have you done for me lately? Let's get after it. And so it's a phrase that we use where we say, you know what? Sure, things had their benefit, but, but what I really want to know is how does something have its benefit for me uh, today? So the title of our message today is this. It may sound cynical, but I hope you understand it's not. What has God done lately? What has God done lately? Uh, maybe you might think about it this way, and if you don't, that's okay. Uh, but if you do, then you're in good company. Um, or you might consider me bad company. I don't know. Well, yeah, Jesus died on the cross, and yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, and yeah, he walked on water and did miracles and fed 5,000, and he's coming again. Yeah, yeah, hell, that's all fantastic. But what has he done for me today? What has he done for me lately? Oh, I mean, those things are all fantastic, and I can read about them, and we're going to have Easter and celebrate it, and that's great. But you know what I got tomorrow? It's called Monday, and it's already got problems stacked up beyond what I want to deal with. So God, what have you done for me lately? And we want to look at this question and think about exactly how the Bible tells it. So I'm going to give you our, my outline in case you want to go to sleep. So I'll tell you what the point is. And that way you say, oh, I got that down. Here it is. What has God done lately? First thing, God is for us. What has God done lately? God is for us. What has God done lately? God loves us. I want to show you how these things work. We're going to start, though, in Psalm 44. Pat read Romans 8. And Psalm 44 is quoted in Romans 8. I'm going to quote from the psalm that is used in Romans 8, but not the part that's quoted in Romans 8 to begin with. So I'm looking at Psalm 44, verses 20 through, 23 through 26. And it's up on the screen. If you want to follow along, you can flip to it in Psalm 44, verse 23. Awake, 
Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. It's a fantastic song because we've all had this experience. Where is God? I love it. He's actually praying to God. It doesn't seem impolite. God, wake up. No, seriously, bro, wake up. I need your help. I don't need your help next week. I don't need your help tomorrow. I need your help right now. Wake up. Where are you? Don't reject us forever. This is a a prayer that at first seems uh, sacrilegious. It would seem sacrilegious if it wasn't in the Bible. So if it's in the Bible, it can't be. And you have the psalmist praying out a prayer that if we haven't said it out loud, we have at least felt it. Where is God? Sure, he parted the Red Sea, the psalmist might say. Sure, he helped the Israelites in in the wilderness with manna. Sure, he helped them defeat Jericho. Sure, he helped us conquer all of our enemies. But you know what? That's all great. That's great for history class and Sunday school. Where is God today? Wake up, oh God. Here's what we want to discover back over in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 is this. When all else is opposed to us, When all else is opposed to us, God continues in this present moment to be for us. When everything else is opposed to us, in the present moment, God continues to be for us. In fact, God is more for us than any other person could be for us. God is for us more than any other who might be for us. Let me read again verses 31 and 32. God is for us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So first of all, a question he asks, simple question. If God is for us, who can be against us? The question is this, if God's on our team, what team can beat us? There isn't one. If God is for us, No one could be against us. I mean, they could say they're against us, but it wouldn't matter because God is for us. So the first thing we should uh, understand for the scripture is we want God to be for us. Because if God is for us, no one could possibly stand against us. The question then is, is God for me? For that answer, we're going to start in Genesis 22, verse 6. Genesis 22, verse 6. A little story going on here in Genesis chapter 22. God has come to Abraham you know Abraham? Many sons, many sons have father Abraham. God had come to Abraham and said about his son Isaac, Isaac is his son of the covenant promise. Abraham has been told God's covenant promises will be fulfilled through Isaac. And God comes to Abraham regarding Isaac and says to Isaac, or to Abraham regarding Isaac, take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, and sacrifice him. Okay, Abraham obeys. We pick up their journey in Genesis 22, verse 6. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Abraham himself took in his hand the fire and the knife. They went on, both of them, together. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham, of course, replied, here I am, my son, a typical response of, go ahead. And his son says this, behold, I'm looking around. I see fire, I see wood, 
Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replies this way. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. How's he end it? My son. This is, this is a prayer. Oh, I pray that God provides a lamb. My son. Because if a lamb doesn't show up, my son, the end is not good. So they went both of them on together. So here we see in Genesis, God's plan in the beginning. He will not spare his own son to be the lamb. And we discover here, God is going to send a lamb. And we see that lamb in here in the, in the beginning of the Bible. We will see that lamb again in Revelation at the end of the Bible. Because God is going to send a lamb of his own choosing. And we discover this lamb is who? His son. He won't spare his son. Abraham's prayer, oh, that I can spare my son. And God answers Abraham's prayer by providing the lamb. Did God spare Jesus on our behalf? And the answer is no, he didn't. He sent him. But go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 31 and 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God would not spare his son Jesus to give to us, do we think he would hold back anything else? If God would not hold back his son, will he hold back anything else? And the answer that it is leading to us is, of course, no. If he's already given us the greatest thing, why would he not give us other things which simply are not the same as that? If he will give us Jesus, will he hold back now? And what he wants us to understand is, going back to the question in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And many of us who are cynical say, well, he's not for me. And then he says, how can you say that? How can you say God's not for you if you won't spare his own son? If he won't spare his own son for you, then that by definition means he is for you. He favors you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So it's simple logic. Is Do we want God for us? Yes. How do we know God is for us? He did not spare his own son. Look at verses 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, maybe we should stop there. Let's answer that question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Think about yourself, not about other people. Okay, you can think about other people too. That's fine. Who can bring a charge against you? Let's say it this way. Is there anything we might be able to bring up that you might prefer we don't? Is there anything, any basis by which a charge could be brought up against you? If you're not certain, ask your spouse or your kid or your good friend. So we read this. Is there, read again. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is it, do you feel the tension there? Is there a problem there? Are you immediately remembering something from earlier this week? Oh, wait, actually, there is something that could be brought up, and it's, oh, it's, it's not a little thing. So the question here is, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's connected back in with Romans uh, 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. But what if there is something that could be brought up? What if there is a charge against us? that actually could stick and actually is that bad. Look what it says. It explains it. 
It is God who justifies. Who can bring a charge against us? No one. Why? Because the charge is, the question is not whether or not we ought to be justified. The question is who justifies? Who justifies? God does. And if God justifies, who can bring a charge against us? The same one who can be against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. So no charge can be brought. It is God who justifies. Look at verse 34. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who condemns? No one can condemn if we have an intercessor. Someone who is standing at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He pays the price for our sin and stands next to the Father and intercedes for us, reminding God, as though God were needed reminding, I paid for their sin. Jesus is interceding for us. What has Jesus done for you lately? He has interceded for you. When has Jesus interceded for you? When you sin. When have you sinned? Don't answer out loud. That'll be awkward. Sometimes we sin on purpose, and we confess it. Lord, that was, that was dumb. Sometimes circumstances come up, and we respond to them, and we're weak, and we shouldn't. And we sort of might say, well, we didn't, didn't want to sin, but we did. Got mad, or whatever it might be, right? But here's a whole other category of sin that a lot of people don't think about. What about this one? What about all the sins you're not even paying attention to. Like, here's how it normally works. Not for you guys, as we always say. What do we say? This is for first service. They'll watch the recording. You've got a couple, two or three big things in your life that you really wish, you really wish they weren't there. Like, like a couple of big, gnarly, top ten list kind of sins that you really wish that you could deal with and, and be done with. And because these, these big things are such a big thing in your mind. They, they capture, they, they, man, Lord, I wish I could just have some strength. We're not even paying attention to the 40 other little things in our mind. And Jesus is making intercession on our behalf for the sin we confess. He is making intercession on our behalf for the sin we're not even paying attention to. He's making intercession on our, our behalf for the sin the, uh, the friends and family around us would wish we were paying attention to. What has God done for you lately? Jesus, who died for you and paid the price for your sin and raised from the dead to empower your life forever, makes intercession on your behalf so that God is always for you. Who can condemn you? No one. Jesus paid the price and he continues to make intercession uh, on your behalf. The gospel is the message, simply put is this, that God really is this good and this kind, that he really does send his son to die for us while we are still sinners. That God really is this kind and this generous. That we are sinners saved by grace through faith alone. Not because we deserve it. Not because we will deserve it someday. Not because we have great potential. But just because God is this kind and this gracious that he would favor us by not sparing his own son and he would make sure everything is handled on our behalf in our fits and starts, in our trips, in our hiccups, that we one day will be glorified with him because of the intercession of his son, Christ. He will work in our lives over and over until glory. God favors us. 
Quick question here before we move to the second half of the passage. Have you ever felt accused? There's a couple of ways you might feel accused. Okay, so you do something wrong. I know, not you, ever, right? You do something wrong. There's a number of ways you might feel accused. Number one, the person standing next to you will say, knock it off. Okay, well, that's kind of rude and right. Okay, other times you'll do something wrong, and you will be accused even in your own spirit, your conscience. You'll do something you're like, that was dumb. I'm not going to do that again until next week. You know, our conscience will accuse us. Our, our own flesh and our own soul will say, that's sin, that's wrong, I shouldn't do that. Right? And then there's another kind of accusation we know that comes from the enemy, Satan. And he comes to us and says this. I see what you did there. In fact, his accusation works both hands. He, what he does is he tries to show us how delightful sin is. We then listen to him and then participate in sin. He never left. He stands right there and says, you're terrible. In fact, the accusation might go in your mind. I don't think somebody who is a Christian would ever do that. If I were God, I would look at you sternly and with disfavor. So the accuser comes, he reminds us, not that we did something bad, he wants to convince us we are bad, that's shame. So we've all experienced these kinds of accusations. We do something and we experience this this weight of shame. There's one more way the accuser accuses. It's not merely directed at us, it's also directed at God. Here's the other way the accuser works. You experience something in your life that could be considered tough, difficult, painful, annoying. And the accuser comes to you and says something like this regarding God. How could God possibly be kind if he put this in your life? Have you ever heard that one? Just an accusation. Now he's not accusing you. He'll pick that up later. Now it's, I don't think God is as kind as you think he is. I think you're reading your Bible wrong. You need to go read some passages that remind you he's upset about something, where he's smiting someone. And so we accuse them. We see this in the book of Job. Job's friends come to Job and tell him, God would never be nice to you. You're a sinner. And then what does God say about his friends, Job's friends at the end of the book? You did not speak true of me like my servant Job did. I am that kind. I would be nice to a guy even like Job. So the accuser comes to us, he tries to convince us God could not possibly love us, and then he turns in the same breath and accuses God in our ear, why doesn't God love you? He's not nearly as nice as you thought he was. But when we look at a passage like this, what has God done for us lately? He did not spare his son. So what has God done for us lately? He is for us. There is no one else on planet earth or in the heavens or under the earth that is more for you than God in his son, Christ Jesus. There is no one else who is more powerful in your life seeking your favor and your uh, goodness other than God. And it is a lie from the devil to try and convince us that God is just in a bad mood and that he couldn't possibly be for us. The Bible is quite clear. Since he didn't spare Jesus, then obviously he is for us. What has God done for us lately? God is for us. Question is, what motivates God? Why would God want to do that? And the answer is this, his love. What has God done for us lately? God loves us. Let's look at verses 34 to 39 of Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? The answer is no. What has God done for us lately? God loves us. There's an old military strategy. It's called a blockade. And the strategy behind a blockade is you create, and usually this is done at sea, uh, you create a blockade where no enemy ships or aircraft or, or crafts can get through uh, to, to cut off the supply lines for the enemy, uh, so that way you can have an easier time conquering them. So you set up a big uh, blockade in the ocean so no enemy ships can get through, and uh, and then over time, the enemy forces in, in where you want to invade, they get weakened, or they, they starve out, or they uh, don't have medical supplies they need, or they run out of bullets, and then you can invade them quite easily. One of the more famous ones we all uh, know of is, uh, uh, you know, Cuba. You know, there's a blockade we set up around the island of Cuba. We can argue later about how effective it was. I was looking for nodding heads to see how old you were, because I wasn't there. I just want to be clear. I'm not that old. But uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, there's a blockade set up. So this is what happens. What the enemy tries to do in our life is set up a blockade. He tries to create in our minds a sense that God could not possibly, God could, could not possibly express love toward me. Because the idea is if he, if he can cut off our experience and understanding and trust in the love of God, it, it cuts off our supply. And what, what we want to be affirmed in here as we look at the word this morning is nothing can cut off the supply. There is no blockade. Nothing can separate the love of God. We might say it this way. In the complexity of our life, in, in our life that occurs inside of us, the thoughts we have and the motivations of our heart, uh, the good and positive things that we're considering and thinking about, as well as the complexities of the struggle and strain with the sin of the inner person. You add on top of that the complexities of our life on the outside. That things that are going well and successes we're experiencing, as well as failures we've experienced, as well as difficulties and sufferings that we're enduring. When we look at all of these things, what he wants us to understand is nothing can interrupt the love of God. Nothing can interrupt the love of God flowing toward us in Christ Jesus. Look at verses 35 and 36 again. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, excuse me, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the first thing we need to think about is this. How do we define Christ's love? How do we define Christ's love in our life? And the first thing, first thing we want to recognize from looking at some verses like this, we need to define Christ's love as an experience that occurs, whether life is super awesome, as you might define it, or whether life is really difficult. If we say, God only loves us when I'm pleased with how my life is going, we've missed how the Bible has defined Christ's love. Christ's love never stops, even during times of significant trial and, and difficulty. God's love can and most often occurs most powerfully in times of great suffering and difficulty. If we think that God only loves us when things are going hunky-dory, then when are you going to experience God's love? Because the reality of life in a broken world is there will be difficulty, there will be suffering, there will be heartache. And if God's love isn't found profoundly during times of suffering, then when else is it more valuable then? during that time. And what he is saying is, we might imagine, well, my life is just, the wheels have come off. And everything's falling apart. And nothing is going right. Therefore, God must not love me. And the Bible says, no, 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 don't miss it. God loves you even in the times of significant stress 
and difficulty. Let's go back to Psalm again, Psalm 44. You still have your finger there? 44:17. This time we're going to read the passage that was quoted by Paul in the book of Romans. Here we go. Roman, uh, Psalm 44, 17 through 22. Here's what it says. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you, he's talking about God, have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake we are killed all day long, and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Another terribly impolite prayer. Imagine yourself at a, at a prayer meeting. No, seriously. It might require some imagination. That would mean, that was... Imagine yourself at a prayer meeting. Somebody's sitting in the circle, and this is their prayer request. Their life is going terrible, and you, everybody knows it. And you say, God, my life is going terrible, and I understand why it is. I'm great. I'm fantastic. Do my devotions every day. I pray to you all the time. I don't sin like the guy two seats down from me. I never worship idols. In spite of the fact, God, that I, I mind my P's and Q's, I keep my nose clean, I don't sin in bad ways, and I, I'm faithful to you, in spite of all that, you've decided to make my life a wreck. Does that sound like an appropriate prayer at a prayer meeting? No. Does it sound like an appropriate prayer at home? No. That's why I love the Psalms. It's full of inappropriate prayers. Because sometimes we think we have to be so polite. Because of God, I am a sinner of unclean lips. Please hear me. Oh, please. You know you think you're doing everything right. You may as well just say it. God, I'm trying to do my best here. I'm trying to live for you here, bro. And you're killing me up here. I mean, this, that's what the prayer is. And look what he says. For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. His argument is, God, we're trying to be faithful to you. But on your behalf, we are being led out as sheep into the, into the meat grinder. How is it possible that we could find Christ's love when he is working in our life through suffering? And the answer is this, the power of the resurrection. What difference does it make if you're a sheep being slaughtered if you can't die? It doesn't matter because the power of death has no claim on you. Look at verse 37 back in Romans 8. Romans 8, 37. What it says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. What are we more than conquerors in? Sheep, slaughter. How can you be a conqueror if you're a sheep being slaughtered? All these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus loved us enough that by faith we can be found in him. And if we are in Christ, that means our sins are forgiven, and one day we will be raised with him forever. What does that mean? We are counted as righteous as Christ, and we will live as long as Christ. So somebody comes to you and says, I'm going to kill you. And what do we, how do we respond biblically? That's it? You're just going to kill me. You do realize I don't die. I mean, you can do whatever you want to this body, and certainly there might be some pain involved. However, I actually experience victory when you kill me. 
And you say, well, that seems really depressing. Well, for all of Christian history, it's been the shout of victory. When we have watched year after year as our fellow brothers and sisters have gone exactly as this verse describes, as sheep to be slaughtered. One of the techniques, this is in a book called Tortured for Christ, one of the techniques of persecutors has often been isolation. What they will do is they would kidnap pastors, take them into isolation, they would kill them, and they would tell them, no one will know you died, no one will know you were, well, you were buried, you will not be a martyr, you will not be honored, you will not inspire anybody by your death. The idea was to make sure this person understood their death was completely meaningless. There will no be an inspiring made-for-TV movie on your life. And hundreds, if not thousands, of fellow believers died in exactly that way. And why is that okay? We are more than conquerors. My death can be meaningless, useless, doesn't matter. No one can know about it. If I am in Christ, I am what in that moment? I'm a conqueror. And in that, we experience the love of Christ, that in Christ, we know we are forgiven. And in Christ, we know our life continues forever. So we have to re redefine victory. Since death is losing, we can't lose because we can't die in Jesus Christ. The resurrection is our victory. What has God done for us lately? He has loved us enough to give us righteousness and life in Christ forever. Okay, the enemy can't kill us. Uh, but um, we're still in a fight. Let me end with this. I know, you're, that's what everybody looks forward to here. Let me end with this. And there was great rejoicing. Here we go. We're not home yet. And let me remind you, we're not home yet. Ephesians 6.10. What has God done for us lately? He's given us his love through righteousness and life with Christ forever. But we're not home yet. And so how do we need to look at this life? Ephesians 6.10-13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. If you're not in heaven yet, you need to stand firm. King Ahab in the Old Testament, one of my favorite Old Testament quotes, comes from one of the worst guys in the Old Testament, and he says this, look it up, it's fantastic. One who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. The time for boasting is when you've had your victory. We're not home yet. Put your armor on, gird your loins, we stand against the enemy, and we're in a fight. We're not home yet. And right now we stand not against flesh and blood, but we stand against the spiritual forces in heavenly places. They are bigger than us, so we had better hope we have somebody who is for us that is bigger than them. Do we? Yes, Jesus Christ. It gets worse before it gets better. Look at 2 Corinthians verse 11, chapter 11, verse 24, Paul describing the victorious Christian life. Are you ready? Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. That's thirty-nine. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Not the Oregon kind of stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Dude, take a train. A night and a day I was adrift in the open sea. 
on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, that's us, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, that's some of us. And now it's getting real. In toil, in hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food, well, that's hunger again. In cold, exposure. There's your victorious Christian life. Who wants a piece of that action? Only if somebody is for you that is bigger than you. Right? We're still in the fight. Look at, second, uh, look at chapter 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. What has God done for us lately in the fight? He is for us. We don't lose this fight. He is for us. And no one can stand against us if God is for us. What else has God done for us lately? God loves us. Three things. You ready? First thing is to believe that God is actually as generous and kind as the Bible says he is. God is not the cheapskate the devil is trying to convince you he is. God is actually as generous and kind, in fact, more generous and kind than you could possibly have hoped for. Disbelieve the accusations of the devil and instead believe your Bible. In Christ, God's kindness and favor and love is for you. And that's a matter of faith. Secondly, let's repent. What do you need to repent of? Let me tell you if you can't think of it. Let's repent of our coldness and our hardness towards God. How many of us in the fight, in the battle, have decided God is kind of mean? And we need to own it. Say, so you know what? I have just decided that he's mean because he won't acknowledge that I'm God. The issue is I need to acknowledge he is, he is God and his ways are good. So we need to take some time and repent. Say, God, in my disbelief and my rebellion, my heart has grown hard and cold because I thought you were mean but the answer is you are for me and you love me. Finally this, since we have victory, since we know death cannot win, since we know we have God's favor and love, how then should we live? What does it mean to say no to sin because God already favors us? What does it mean to say no to selfishness and instead express selfless love to others because God favors us? What does it mean in your life to acknowledge your pride and arrogance and instead wrestle with humility and humiliation? Because God is for us. What has God done for me lately? What has God done for you lately? He is for us and he loves us.